Well, this morning, and as, as I was printing the worship folders, something unexpected happened. My printer just stopped printing. My printer died without warning. Well, not the printer, but the cartridge died without warning. And the, the uh, printer will not print without uh, the cartridge full. It, if it says it's, the cartridge is empty, it's like it's dead, it's done. Normally it warns me. It didn't warn me today. I'd actually run all of the worship folders previously and realized that I put numbers uh, on the overview rather than Deuteronomy. So I had to fix that and ran it off and, and uh, printed Deuteronomy and got maybe half of them printed and then it just died without, without any warning. So most of you have the updated one, but a few of you might, it might say numbers on the overview instead of Deuteronomy. So you can all check. But without warning, it died. Well, the Lord gave me a great sermon connection with that. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are going to die. We know from the history of Israel, they're going to die. They're not going to choose life. But God gave his visible people plenty of warning. They knew well ahead of time what would happen if they rebelled against the Lord. If you look at the melodic line as I've given it to you in the worship folder, uh, the melodic line of Deuteronomy is this. Choose life that you may live. Choose life that you may live. On the plains of Moab, a new generation of Israelites enter covenant with the Lord to go into the promised land and be his people. But total allegiance is required. And failure comes with stiff penalties, a cursed existence, and expulsion from the land. While it becomes clear that Israel will fail, the Lord promises a prophet to lead his people who is greater than Moses. And Deuteronomy ends with hope, anticipating that greater Moses to come. That prophet will be the way to eternal life and the only one who can ultimately save us from the covenant curse of the law. The, the predominant message of Deuteronomy, again, is choose life that you may live. And that is put before the Israelites time and time again and in various ways in, in Deuteronomy. And we're going to look at this today. But it all has to do with life versus death, blessing versus curse. Remember that the whole first generation of Israelites, those that beheld the seas parting and were delivered and who were fed in the wilderness, continued to grumble and murmur against the Lord. And when the Lord led them to the land, they sent the spies in, 10 out of 12, gave a bad report. The people panicked, wanted to stone those who wanted to go in. And the Lord said, none of you. None of you 20 years and old or up that were there in that day will make it into my land. And so 40 years, that disobedience, that rebellion cost them 40 years and the death of a whole generation. And now on the plains of Moab, on the eastern edge of the promised land, the second generation is waiting to go in. And that's where we are. That's what we've seen these last several weeks. Deuteronomy takes the form itself, the structure, the literary structure, the form of an ancient Near Eastern covenant. 
the way that Deuteronomy is organized takes the form of what's called a suzerainty treaty. It's kind of a mouthful. You don't need to remember that. You can just remember it's an ancient Near Eastern covenant. A suzerainty covenant or treaty. If you look on your inside cover, of back cover of the bulletin, you can see there with literary structure, Deuteronomy takes the form of a suzerainty covenant. This form of covenant was prevalent in the late Bronze Age, which is around the time of the writing of Moses, 1400 to 1200 B.C. The main features of a suzerainty covenant include, one, a preamble, two, a historical prologue, three, stipulations, that would be the laws or the, or the rules, four, provisions for ratification, and that's a confirmation, and or a renewal of the covenant, uh, five witnesses, six blessings and curses, and seven, sometimes the inclusion of covenant symbols, such as the slaughtering of an animal to represent the consequence of a breach. That last point is not in this covenant renewal ceremony that we see, but everything else is. We do have an example of that seventh part of the slaughtering of an animal when God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham slaughtered an animal. Both You have one part of the animal on one side, one part of the animal on the other. And normally the two members of the covenant treaty walk through it together saying, may that happen to me if I don't hold up my end of the covenant. Well, in Abraham's case, God puts Abraham to sleep and the Lord passes through, taking on both ends of the covenant because we know it's going to be the Lord Jesus who will be the covenant fulfiller. But in Deuteronomy, we have this covenant renewal moment as probably some two million Israelites are on the borders of the land wanting to get in. And this is a second chance for them. This morning, we're going to look at this uh, book in two parts. First, we're going to look at the message of Deuteronomy, and then we will look at the message of the New Testament as it relates to Deuteronomy. How does the New Testament see Deuteronomy in its own eyes in the fullness of time? Before we get to that first point, I just want to get us up to speed. We are now in the fifth book of the Old Testament, uh, what is called the Pentateuch, Uh, Sometimes it's called the Torah, T-O-R-A-H. Sometimes it's called the Law of Moses. In your Norwegian translations, you get the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth book of Moses. So these are the books that we attribute to Moses as the author. Uh, Now, with that said, it is clear, like, for example, that Moses can't write about his own death. So in God's providence... Uh, He has inspired someone to be the editor of Moses' words and works to ultimately compile this together. But when we say these are the books of Moses, we mean that Moses is the source. Moses is the one who has given this, who has passed this on, who gave the law to the Israelites, who led them to the borders of the promised land. He's the one that recorded. It's quite likely, for example, that uh, Joshua is the final editor who, who succeeds Moses. Of course, there are great debates among uh, scholars, liberal scholars, and uh, even evangelical Bible-believing 
scholars as well, how did this ultimately come together? But these are the books of Moses. He was the source. He was the one that God spoke to and who wrote these words down for us. As we've seen in these five books, I want to just make sure we're kind of tracking along the way. I just want to give you a quick overview of the books. In Genesis, remember we focused on gospel beginnings. Genesis was about gospel beginnings. We see the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham, as Paul says, saying, in you all the inhabitants of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what Genesis is all about, gospel beginnings. Exodus was all about getting to know who our God is. The revelation of God's name, Yahweh, I am what I am. And we saw his glory in three different stages in Exodus. In Leviticus, we learned that you shall be holy, that God's people shall be set apart and live distinctly from the nations. And last week in Numbers, we learned about the tragic tale of unbelief of the, the hardness of heart, of the hearts of God's people who were lost in the wilderness. And the New Testament describes that to simply unbelief. You have belief and you have unbelief and they did not believe in God and so they fell in the wilderness. And now today, the message of Deuteronomy, choose life that you may live. So that brings us up to speed. Let's look then at the message of Deuteronomy so point one, is just, I'm simply calling it, choose life, the message of Deuteronomy. Choose life, the message of Deuteronomy. And if you have your worship folder open there to page seven, we will slowly work through this uh, brief outline. So Deuteronomy, in keeping with the covenant treaty, ha- opens up with the preamble and then a historical prologue. But In the preamble, in in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizhabah. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb. And again, this is Mount Sinai. Horeb's another name for Sinai. It's 11 days' journey from Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrai, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, And he goes on. And the rest of Deuteronomy is Moses explaining the law. And so we come to the historical prologue. And Moses recounts the whole journey from Egypt and their redemption through the wilderness years and their rebellion and the hardness of their hearts to the plains of Moab where they are now. So the covenant begins by reminding them of what God did for them and what they did or didn't do for God to set the stage for the reason for this covenant renewal. So the historical prologue just says the reason why we need to renew this covenant. It's because God was faithful and you were rebellious time and time again. And so after he gives that historical recounting, He warns the people in chapter 4. 
And he says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. Here's this idea of life again. That you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. And so he's warning them. The Lord's giving you this land. But you must keep them that you might live. That you might live. And he goes on to warn them in that if you do not, you will not live. As Moses says, you will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So even in this historical prologue, he's giving them the choice between life and death. And it has to do with whether or not you will keep the commandments of the Lord and do them or not. And so he ends this warning in chapter 4, 39 to 40. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So everything that now is going to unfold in the chapters of head have to do with life or death. Living long in the land for all time, or being expelled and utterly destroyed. It's really a simple message, actually. It's very binary, life or death, blessing or curse, for complete obedience or not complete obedience. It's really that simple. But we will see here that it will be very hard to do. We move then into the stipulations, which is a huge section in Deuteronomy. And in this section, as you see, as I've listed here, we have both general laws. You could call these principled laws, basic principles for how to live. And then the second part of the stipulations are specific laws, which have just, there's all sorts of case law uh, examples and, uh, of, of all sorts of things you're not supposed to do or things you are supposed to do in, in very specific Order And we, we don't have time to go through all of those today, obviously. Uh, but I want to point out a few of the highlights from the general laws. First, of, of course, we have a second retelling of the Ten Commandments. Okay, And that's really where Deuteronomy gets its name. The, word, the name Deuteronomy means second law. It's the second giving of the law. And so in these general laws begin with the Ten Commandments. But then after that, we are given the greatest commandment. So we get this principle in chapter 6. And I'll read 4 to 9. And Moses says, Hear, O Israel, this is the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And right there, it sets Israel apart from all the nations. All the surrounding nations worshipped many gods. But Yahweh was monotheistic. They worshipped one God. 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And Moses goes on. The greatest commandment, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you will diligently teach it to your children. I take from these verses just a way of like family application. Uh, the call to formal and informal discipleship. We have formal discipleship, for example, when we gather on the Lord's Day, formal teaching, formal worship. We go to a Sunday school class, you get some formal teaching there. But look at how Moses describes discipleship in these verses. It's, you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, right? When you walk, by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It's just when you go about your life, you're teaching your children, And that could apply to us as God's children as well. When we go about our lives in and out of the church, we're teaching and encouraging and reminding people of who the Lord is. That's what we do. So that's the greatest commandment. In chapter 7, we see this exhortation to remain separate from the nations. Because what happens when Israel blends with the nations? They take on the religious and moral practices of the nations. So this is like number three in the list. You get the Ten Commandments. You get love the Lord with all your heart. And then you get be separate from the nations. Be separate from the nations. And Moses says in chapter 7, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, that is the nations in the land of Canaan, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters to your, for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So what Israel is to do when they get into the land, and this sounds harsh to us, they are to devote the people to complete destruction. That means killing every man, woman, and child within the borders of the land of Canaan. That has led many people to accuse God of being a moral monster, of doing some great evil, and and has caused some to say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Those are some very historic heresies. And it sounds harsh to us, but what we must understand, we know that on the last day, the day of judgment, that unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire. That the only way for God's land, which is the universe, will be made pure and holy is when only God's people are there. So it sounds harsh to us to think of the idea of God having a whole people wiped out, but that's the spiritual reality at the end of days. And of course now we live... Uh, we do not do that today. That's not. We live under a period of grace where our 
our warfare is the gospel. It's not with the sword. That will be the Lord's business. But at this time, we get in a very earthly, real, very physical picture of what it means to purify the land. Because if, if sinners remain in the land, rebellious peoples... By the way, these aren't good people. These are people that are burning their children to Molech, and these are people that are morally wicked. While they remain in the land, Israel will be led to follow them. And that is the truth. And so they need to remain separate from the nations and that the land must be separate. Fourthly, then, in these general laws, we're also, they're also told that you will, must remember the Lord. And the way that you will remember him is by keeping the commandment. And Moses says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You, of course, know that our Lord Jesus quoted that to the devil. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, there is intentional parallelism there, by the way. As Jesus is the greater Moses in the wilderness, 40 days is not, uh, does not fall to the devil. And what does Jesus point back to? These words, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there is a principle to rest on there. So these are the the gen, these are some of the general principles that are in the section that I wanted to point out to you to give you a taste and a feel for the book of Deuteronomy. But we get a lot of chapters. The end of chapter four, all the way to chapter twenty-six, is law. Uh, the the word law, statute, rule is used. 207 times in 34 chapters. So law, rules, that's a big, that's a clue that that's a big point in Deuteronomy. It's used 207 times, a word relating to law, commandment, statute, and rule. God very much cares how his people live. That is no small thing in God's eyes. And it has everything to do or whether or not they will live in the land or not. And that leads us then to the curses and blessings, ratification and witnesses in the fourth section of Deuteronomy. And here now that the law has been given, God is giving instructions for this covenant renewal ceremony. So there's going to be a ceremony where all the people are going to get together. And this is what the Lord says you must do. And one of the big word pictures, because, you know, we need visual pictures sometimes, He's going to have half the tribes stand on a mountain called Ebal and the other half stand on a mountain called Gerizim. And from Mount Ebal, the people are going to shout the curses so that everyone can hear it and know what they've signed up for. So these curses come and it has to... And, and, I'm not going to read it verbatim because we don't have the time. But we read in 27 that you are cursed if you do the following. If you practice idolatry. If you dishonor your parents. 
if you move property boundaries, if you mislead a blind man, if you pervert justice for the vulnerable, uh, if you have sex with a father's wife, sex with animals, sex with a sister or stepsister, sex with a mother-in-law, striking a neighbor in secret, bribery and killing the innocent, and failing to keep the words of God's law by doing them. So you get some highlights, and then you get the last one just summarizes. If you fail to keep the words of God by doing them, not just professing them, by doing them, you are cursed. And so just imagine this host of people shouting these curses. You know, that's something that you would remember your whole life when you experience that. And then in chapter 28, then, we get the blessing, though, that if you follow and keep the commandments, you could just summarize chapter 28, your whole life shall be blessed. That's the summary of 28. If you keep the commandments, your whole life will be blessed. And we read about things like, the Lord will set them high above all the nations of the earth. Your cities and fields shall be blessed. The fruit of your womb and the ground and the animals shall be blessed. Your basket and kneading bowl shall be blessed. You shall be blessed everywhere you go. Your enemies shall be defeated. Your productivity will be blessed. Everything you undertake will be blessed. Your every endeavor will be blessing. The Lord will establish you as his holy people. All the peoples of the earth shall be afraid of you. The Lord will make your prosperity abound in the land. The Lord will give you rain in its season. Bless all your works that you will lend but not borrow. You will lend but not borrow. And all this, Moses says, the Lord will do if you obey all the commandments and do not turn aside to go after other gods and serve them. That's a pretty good deal, I would say. It's, it's the very picture of shalom, as we've used that word these last couple weeks. It's the very picture of peace. Everything in your life prospers and goes well. Perfect shalom in the land. If you keep all his commandments. And don't turn aside to serve after other gods and serve them. So then we get to the second half of 28. And really, we summarize the blessings as your whole life shall be blessed. The curses, your whole life will be cursed if you forsake the Lord. In verses 15 to 68, we read things like, Your cities and fields shall be cursed. Your basket and kneading bowl shall be cursed. Your fruit of the womb the ground and animals shall be cursed. You're getting the exact opposite of the blessing. You shall be cursed everywhere you go. The Lord will send you curses, confusion, and frustration in all you do until you are destroyed. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. The Lord will curse every aspect of your life in the land. The Lord will give you over to a foreign nation and you will become a curse and a byword wherever they lead you. The Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. The Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. That's my paraphrase of those things. You can read them in detail in your own time. So we have this, what a stark contrast between perfect shalom and utter destruction, blessing and curses. So that is the word of the Lord. They have been well warned. 
They've been well warned before going into the land about what I will do. And in this way, God is the perfect father. You know, a perfect father is one who is consistent with their kid every time. You do this, this will happen. Right? The worst kind of children are raised when you say you're going to do this and you don't follow through. That's how you raise very petulant, narcissistic, self-centered children. You say, I'm going to do this, and then you don't follow through. They live life with no consequences. God is very clear. You do this, this is what I'll do. You do that, this is what I'll do. And he tells them again and again and again, again and again and again. And so then they gather at Moab, chapters 29 and 30, which is what we read in our scripture reading. So I won't read that large section to you. But at the end of that covenant renewal ceremony, Moses says to them in chapter 30, verses 19 and 20, and he's calling them to choose between life and death. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So it's very binary, life or death, blessing or curse, obedience or disobedience. And live long in the land, you and your children and your children's children, or be utterly destroyed and expelled from the covenant of promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Deuteronomy concludes with succession of leadership. And we learn that Joshua, he's one of the faithful spies. Joshua and Caleb were the two that went in and said, yeah, there's some big people here, but it's a good land and God is with us. Let's go do it. And they almost got stoned for saying that before the people because the people were so afraid. But Joshua gets to be the next leader after Moses. And so the succession plans are here. There's a stipulation that the law needs to be read every seven years. So every seven years, all the people would gather together to read the law. Could you imagine if like the whole church and the globe gathered every seven years to hear the gospel read, right? One of or the New Testament read. It's you know, something like that. All the peoples, every seven years. Uh, then Joshua's commissioned, and we have this song of Moses. And I wish I had the time to take you through the song of Moses uh, in chapter 32. I would encourage you to study. It's really Deuteronomy in a nutshell. It's, again, another way of the blessing and the warning. And, and the Lord tells Moses, write this song, for it will be a witness for me against them. <laughs> It'll be another witness to what the Lord has said and warned and said he would do if you disobey. And you have the song of Moses and the New Testament cites it many times. So it's a really great study if you want Deuteronomy in a nutshell today. And then we go on and Moses again warns the people to obey the whole law. His death is foretold and then in chapters 33 and 34 we have his final blessing, his death, and then the succession of Joshua. But I want to read the last words of Deuteronomy to you because they're a connection point for us to the New Testament and to us today. 
In chapter 34, verses 10 to 12, the book ends this way. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now, why does this point us forward to the New Testament? And the, the reason it does is that these words in chapter 34 connect back to chapter 18, which I skipped over beforehand. But in the listing of specific laws that the Lord gives to Israel, one of them is don't be led away by false prophets. Don't be led away by false prophets. But in chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 15, and he says, And I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And then Moses goes on to talk about others who will claim to be prophets presumptuously. And that the way you know if a prophet is a prophet is if what they say will happen actually comes true. But hey, even in our churches today, there are loads of people presumptuously claiming to speak words for the Lord that don't come true. And that's a, that's a message for another day. But what I want you to focus on here is that there's going to be a greater prophet. We get that in 18, and then in 14, we're, we're, in 34, we're told there hasn't been another one since, like Moses. But we know chapter 18, so God's people are waiting for that greater prophet. They're waiting for that greater prophet for a thousand, over a thousand years. And then we come to the New Testament. And so this is our second point, and I'm going to connect the prophet. The second point, what's the message in the New Testament? Choose life. It's the same message as Deuteronomy. But there's going to be hope for us because we know that the Israelites couldn't do it then. But I want to show you four things here, four things in brief about how the New Testament picks up on what Deuteronomy teaches. Number one, that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Number one, Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. In Acts 3.22, Acts 3.22, Peter says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that people shall be destroyed from the people. Peter's quoting Deuteronomy. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons, so Peter's talking to the Pharisees here, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, 
sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter is showing us that Jesus is the greater prophet to come, the prophet greater than Moses, and that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Secondly, Jesus is the curse redeemer. It's the second thing the New Testament tells us. Jesus is the curse redeemer for those who have faith. Paul says in Galatians 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a citation from Deuteronomy. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the New Testament's picking up all these scenes from Deuteronomy. Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the curse redeemer. It is evident, as Paul said, that no one will be justified by the law. We all miserably fail at it, even as the Israelites did. But Jesus redeems us from the curse through faith. And that leads us to a third thing I want you to see. I've said Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the cursed redeemer for those who have faith. And three, Jesus is the way to life if you choose to believe. So if you want to choose life, you have to believe in Jesus. John mentions the word life countless times in his gospel. And we just recently preached through that book. But John opens the the gospel in his prologue saying, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He connects us to the Pentateuch. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ, through the greater prophet. And life features predominantly in John. I'll just read you very quickly a smattering of verses. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. He's made that binary leap from the curse to life in Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. In chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it 
abundantly. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And one last one, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This greater prophet is able to lead his people into the land, unlike Moses, because he is the way. He's the truth and the life. So if you want the blessings promised in Deuteronomy for the people of God, you have to choose Christ because he is the life. You have to place your faith in Christ. He is the way to life. He is the way to the greater land, which is the new creation. The land in Canaan and the blessings just pointed to that greater reality, which is the new creation. And if you want life, shalom in that land, the only way to it is finding life through Jesus because Jesus bore the curse. He bore the penalty for our covenant break. Our covenant breaches are healed in Christ. And that leads me to a fourth and final thing I want to say, and I'll conclude the message with this. That Jesus is God's answer for total grace when we are a people who are totally depraved. I'll say that again. Jesus is God's answer for total grace. For we are a people who are totally depraved. You know, you could sum up the entire Old Testament. We could stop this this sermon series right now. But just saying, what's Old Testament about? The Old Testament is about man's total depravity. Man trying to please God on his own strength. With hints of grace along the way. Like the gospel, the first telling of the gospel, which we talked about in Genesis. There's hints of the gospel along the way. We know that Abraham was justified by faith. So there's hints of grace. But it's all about total depravity. The whole Old Testament. Man trying to justify themselves on their own strength. They can't do it. And we can't do it today. It's the same thing. It's the same reality. So that even the command to choose life is beyond our grasp. Even the command to believe in Jesus is beyond our ability to do. And I want to explain that in these closing minutes. The Lord promised the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30 that one day he would circumcise their hearts and give them an ability to love the Lord. In Deuteronomy 36, Moses says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This is actually going to need to be a work of the Lord. The Lord's going to need to come and circumcise your heart and the heart of your children. And in Acts 7, Stephen picks this up on the negative side when he tells the Pharisees who are about to stone Stephen and kill him, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, 
and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Same uncircumcised problems going on in the New Testament. Hearts are uncircumcised because you can't do it without grace. But what does Paul say in Titus? Titus 3, 4 to 7. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his Grace. We'd expect him to say faith there. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That before you were able to believe in Jesus, you were justified by grace, by the Spirit turning the light switch on in your dark mind, in your dark heart. The Spirit had to do that first. That's why in John chapter 1 he says children born not by the will of man or the will of flesh but by God that's those are the ones who gave the right to become his children by believing because the work of the spirit happened in your heart first before you could believe so that this command to choose life is actually also a gift a gift by God Paul says as much in Romans 12, 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That is, don't get a big head. Don't get a big spiritual haughty head. Because he says, But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God assigns the faith. God assigns the faith. That's why Jesus can say in John 6, all the Father gives to me will come to me. All the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Friends, as we read Deuteronomy, it's fairly depressing because we know Israel's going to fail, and if we try to live according to that law, we will fail as well. But the New Testament gives us hope with Deuteronomy that Jesus is the greater prophet, the prophet greater than Moses, Jesus is the curse redeemer. Jesus is the way to life for those who believe that even the choice to choose life has been a gift granted to us by our Father in heaven. And that's why John can say that the law came through Moses. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through him. So Deuteronomy calls us to choose life that we might live. And we can do that by the grace of God, by placing our faith in Jesus. Let's pray.